And if you have your Bibles, you'll want to turn with me. We're going to be in Acts chapter 12. And our kind of rhythm and routine here is on the last Sunday in between Christmas and New Year's, we always do a special service of prayer and communion where we try and dedicate. We look back on the past year, look forward to the coming year. And uh, if you missed last week, we created this. Uh, you can grab one of these as you come in or out. But this is a resource for you. It wasn't just for last week. Kind of the goal is this to be a guide to help help you tune up your heart and your soul all throughout the year. So it's kind of filled with different categories where you can ask yourself, just kind of give yourself a spiritual uh, checkup. And then it's also a really helpful tool you can use with others. Uh, probably the best way to utilize this is sit down with someone who knows you and loves you, and you can talk together about uh, these questions. In fact, Cynthia took our girls out to first watch, and they had a special breakfast date, and then uh, she ambushed them with that walk through all of these questions, but it actually became a really sweet time of, of relational connection. So that was last week. And then what we do for the first week of uh, every new year is we try and recommit and reorient ourselves to prayer. And so we're going to look at Acts chapter 12. And uh, the reason why we do this is because on January 1st, uh, you know, it's a time where many, many people are vowing to become the best versions of themselves. And in normal times, January 1st is normally a time of energy and excitement. People are looking about how they're going to um, uh, be renewed, restored. And, uh, you know, there's all types of, you know, this is your chance where you can focus and transform yourself with either the 17-day the diet, the 8-day diet, or the 8-hour diet. You know, this is your chance where you can learn the secrets of becoming you know, organized, in the, you know, in your thought life or in your life, in your mind. This is your chance to be able to craft and fashion the best version of you that you can present to the world. And then I've noticed, and have you noticed the last two years, there hasn't been as much kind of energetic optimism about moving into the new year. In fact, there were several memes going around all last week where I was like, you know, 2022 is just 2020 part three. <laughs> and there's not as much energy and optimism. And maybe that's good. What I want us to think about, we're going to look at a story this morning in Acts chapter 12 where the church, they find themselves in a place of remarkable difficulty in a place of darkness, a place of hopelessness, a place of helplessness, and that's actually good for them. You think what we normally try and do is how we try and present our best selves to the world. Um, I was listening to a study this past week by Jonathan Haidt, the researcher out of uh, New York University, who's written a lot of things about like the coddling of the American mind and things like that. And it was fascinating because he was talking about this massive research project they've been working on with teenage girls. And one of the great kind of areas of anxiety they found is that, you know, teenage girls who present themselves in the world, you know, I'm not on uh, Instagram, so I'm not familiar with all the different uh, settings and things you can use on Instagram, but one of the, uh, like, emotional challenges is you can present yourself and you can put on the perfect filter that just kind of smooths away all the blemishes. But then one of the anxieties is when your whole life is oriented to presenting something where you can have the perfect filter, what happens when you get around real people and there's no perfect filter? And then, but we do that in so many different areas. How do you eliminate, you know, how do you present the best image of who you are? You, you try to eliminate the, the weaknesses. 
But one of the paradoxical realities that the Bible presents to us is actually our weaknesses are not things that are meant to be masked or hidden. They're actually the point of our strength. And they're actually the places of our hope. So what we want to think about that, how are, how are our weaknesses, how are our sense of feeling helpless and hopeless, how is that actually a good thing? And Acts chapter 12 is this fascinating passage. It's such an interesting passage because we see, on the one hand, we see a character arc of Peter who we can actually trace a remarkable transformation. Now, I have a tendency to be a little skeptical about all of the presentations on how you can transform your life in three easy steps or 12 easy days. My tendency would be to kind of follow along. I'm more pessimistic. My tendency to be to believe like Plato. Plato thought your character was fixed by the age of three and you were just done after that. You had no if, if you, you messed up by the other. What did he hope? And I would think he's probably right if I didn't believe in the Holy Spirit and the power of the word to bring about real transformation. But here we see Peter, we see a remarkable transformation. Someone who really does experience a powerful uh, change. But then also we see the church turning to the Lord in a time of hopelessness and difficulty and danger. So no matter what we're going to experience in the next year, this is a wonderful paradigm and model for what can be our hope. And on this passage, Charles Spurgeon, he said, however poisonous the viper prayer can extract its sting. However fierce the lion, prayer can break its teeth. However terrible the fire, prayer can quench the violence of the flame. So no matter what situation we're in, it's, it's the answer. And one of the marvels as you read Acts is you just think, All right, how did the early church survive? I mean, there's this ragtag collection of fearful and frantic people. And then at some point, the kind of whole weight of the, the Roman and then Jewish kind of military uh, force comes weighing down on them. How did they even survive? And here in chapter 12, we're given that answer. And one of the keys is in verse 5 where it says, they committed, earnest prayer was made for them. The fact is that on all occasions, they were dedicated to coming together and praying. Spurgeon again says, while praying, the Spirit of God came down on them. While praying, the Spirit often separated this man or that person for their special work. While praying, their hearts grew warm with the inward fire. While praying, their tongues were unloosed and they went forth to speak in power to the people. While praying, the Lord opened up for them all the treasures of his grace. Their hope was while praying. And so my goal for you, my hope for you this morning is you think about, all right, new year, new you, what are the most important things to focus on? And it's trying to reorient us to the centrality and importance of prayer. And what we want to see is actually in times of helplessness, in times of kind of discouragement, disappointment, times where we feel the weakest, those actually can be the moments where we experience true transformation and power. So first thing I want to think about when we're at you know, we're actually, paradoxically, we're at our strongest when we are weakest because that's when we first look up. Let's read the story and get a sense. Starting in chapter 12. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church, and he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending that after the Passover, he was going to bring them him out to the people. 
So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. And now when Herod was about to bring him out, on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him and a light shone in the cell. And he struck Peter on the side and woke him up saying, get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did. And he said to him, wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. And he did not know what was being done by him, by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. And when he had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. And it opened up on its own accord. And then they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and has rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, from all the Jewish people were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door at the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. And recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing outside. And they said to her, you are out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so. And they kept saying, it's his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of prison. And he said, tell these things to James and the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day had come, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter. Now skip down and look in verse 20 what happened to Herod. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They came to him with one accord, having persuaded the king's chamberlain. They asked for peace because the country depended on the king for their food. And on appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes and took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, this is the voice of God and not of man. And immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So there's all types. There's just kind of divine and irony running through this story. But the first thing we see is that when we're actually at our strongest, when we're weakest, because in those moments, it causes, it forces us to look up. That's when we look up. You know, verses one through five is meant to set the stage for what they were experiencing. And these are difficult times. Dark times. You know, did you notice that Herod, uh, first he takes James, one of the disciples, John's brother, and then kills him. And so this is the first martyr, first kind of leader, one of the pillars of the church is taken and he's killed. And then Herod sees how uh, much that, how publicly popular that was. So he's going to then take Peter as well. And then he puts four, it's almost like four groups of soldiers to guard Peter. It's kind of interesting. Seems like it might be an overreaction. Four different, so probably about 25 total soldiers are guarding uh, Peter. And then Herod, kind of who is he? There's kind of a running, ironic, kind of, you know, tongue-in-cheek Herod the king. 
He's posing to be the king. Who's the real king? Herod, at this point, he's one of, you know, Herod the Great's grandchildren. He was good friends. He was kind of, a, in essence, a boyhood friend of Claudius, who's now the emperor of Rome. So he's probably, at this point, at least as far as connections go, one of the most powerful leaders in all of uh, Israel. And then you just know there's this contrast that Luke sets up. He paints this picture, you know, Herod is going to lay violent hands. And so how do they respond? They lift up open praying hands. You know, Herod starts to wield the sword to kill. So how do they respond? The sword gets unleashed in verse 24, the sword of the spirit to bring life. And then Herod sees that his act of violence brings self-glorification and makes him more popular. So he's going to do it uh, more, more things to bring himself glory and praise, but they're committed to bringing glory to God. He's filled with arrogance. They're filled with Caesar. He thinks his power comes because he has the ear of Caesar. They know their power comes because they have the ear of the Lord. And when but from just kind of a worldly perspective, they're in a time of just hopelessness, helplessness. And then you think they then gather together. Verse five is really the core verse. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made. It's interesting when they came together, what do you think they prayed for? You know, they pray for some uh, specific petition to Herod or that they were going to plan their own rescue you know, it's an interesting question. Does your weakness, when you sense your own weakness, does that drive you to your knees? When you sense your own fear, does that make you more prayerful? When you sense your own worries, where do you go? Where do you take those, your doubts? You know, anything that forces you to become more prayerful in the end is good for you. And so what impossible situation are you in? They find themselves in this impossible situation that if God doesn't show up, then they don't know what they're going to do. So maybe this past year you were placed in an impossible situation. If God doesn't show up, I don't know what to do. This is exactly where they are. Anything that comes your way that makes you more dependent can be for your good. So the first thing is our weaknesses can be good because they're the things that cause us to look up. But then notice the weaknesses are also, we're at our strongest when we're weakest because that's often when God comes down. You know, we look up. But then it's in those situations that he comes down. You know, the kind of the central message of the passage is what happens when God acts. And you can kind of see the, the pattern in verse 6 and verse 7. But did you notice, I think probably the most stark example of transformation and the greatest miracle in this whole chapter is probably verse 6. Now when Herod was going to bring him out on that very night, Peter was asleep. Peter's sleeping. This is the last night. So Herod has brought him in during the week of the, the Passover feast, and he knows he can't execute him on, uh, during the Passover feast. So he knows as soon as it's over, he's going to bring him out and publicly execute him. He, Peter knows this. This is, in essence, Peter's last night on earth. He knows, in essence, as soon as it's dust that he's going to die. And notice how he's responding. He's asleep. Like, where in the world does that kind of poise come from? You know, maybe you they joke, maybe you're a hard sleeper, and, you know, you, it's been teased of you that you could sleep through a hurricane. 
Sleep through an earthquake. Here he's sleeping. Now, do you remember the last time that it was a dark night and Peter was afraid for his life, how he responded? We don't know the exact timing, but it's not that long ago. It's only maybe a year later. The last time that he was scared for his life and was confronted, he denied the Lord. He panicked. He, he broke down in fear. And then now he's asleep. Like, where does that kind of poise come from? That transformation from fear to just a, a certainty and faith, utterly at peace, even though he knows he's going to die tomorrow. You know, I don't know how, you know, what are the things that cause, cause you restless nights and not to be able to sleep? Here he is. He knows the deep blessing. Of course, you know, every parent of a new child knows the gift of sleep, how important that is. And here he's, he's able to rest. But then notice the sequence of what the angel does. First, the angel then stands next to him. Come and is right by his presence is there. One of the most powerful things we never experience in times of fear and doubt and hopelessness is just to know that he's there next to me. He comes and he stands next to them and then the light shines in the darkness. And then it's, so, it's almost comical. He has to slap Peter and wake him up. Like, hey, wake up. And he wakes him up and then he frees him. The chains fall off. Then he dresses him, and then he leads him out. He awakens, he frees, he clothes, and then he, he leads. And all of those are symbolic of what the Lord does to us in times of helplessness. When we turn to him, these are the things he does. He'll shine light into the darkness. He'll wake us up to realities we didn't know were there or aware of before. He'll clothe us. You know, the clothing is sim it's symbolic of how we present our best kind of face forward, how we present ourselves. And one of the great gifts of the gospel is that kind of our old rags of trying to present ourselves the best way possible are, are done away with. And we're, we actually have a spiritual perfect filter that's put on us, which is the righteousness of Christ, which is how the Lord sees us. And if in him, he sees us that way, it doesn't matter how anyone else sees or perceives us. He clothes him and then he leads him out. And this can be a powerful uh, kind of pattern that will close for how we can pray, how we can pray for ourselves, what we need, how we can pray for others. But before we, we come to that, let's look at kind of a couple things just wrapping up. Notice when we're, we're at our strongest, you know, moments of weakness, paradoxically, are times of our strongest because that's forced us to look up. And it's often in those contexts where God comes down, but then that's also when we then get sent out. So notice in verse 11, he gets picked up and then he gets sent out. He has to go to tell. You know, I love that phrase. Now when Peter came to himself, I mean, he just thought he was living in this dream. He thought it was literally a dream. Then he realized, oh, wait a second. This is not a dream. This is, this is actually happening. And he begins to learn the mechanics of grace about how God frees his people. And then he's told to go and tell, or he thinks, now I'm sure I'm going to go and I'm going to tell. But what's so interesting is notice he goes to the house of Mary. This is Mark's home. And he goes and he starts knocking on the door. She hears his voice, gets so excited. She leaves him outside in the middle of the night and then runs to tell everyone. And a couple interesting things. Notice the iron gate for the prison gets opened by the angel, but then the angel doesn't open this door. So there's certain doors that God will divinely open for you. There's some he won't that you're dependent on others to open for you. 
It's kind of like, well, how do you know the difference? I don't know. That's why you pray. And it's also interesting because, you know, James is in prison and James gets martyred, but Peter gets rescued and escapes. Why? I don't know. That's why we're dependent on his goodness and we turn to him. And then notice the dynamic. I think it just reveals just the humanness of the disciples. For the entire week, they've been praying that Peter would get rescued, that God would uh, free him. It actually happens. And do you notice they don't believe that it happened? She comes and tells them, Peter's at the door. And they say, you're crazy. That hasn't happened. We've been praying for this thing for the entire week, and then it happens and they don't believe. I mean, that's just how we are. That's just how we are. And then he goes and tells them. And then another thing to think about, did you notice, when does the Lord set Peter free? Uh, Luke intentional tells you it's on the very last night. Why? So this is a seven-day feast. Peter's arrested at the very beginning. They start to gather and they pray for him on day one. They pray that he'll be released on day one, and he's not. They pray day two, no. Day three, he's not. Day four, why? Why does the Lord wait till the very last night to set him free? We think, all right, come on, you could have done it, you know, day two, could have done it day three. Why does he wait till the very last night? Again, I don't know. But often that's how he is, to create, to generate faith, to generate trust. He waits to the very last night. So as we think about this as kind of a model for us in this coming year, um, normally, you know, we move into a time of of communion. And so this time what I really want us to do is uh, pull up if we have just the different prayer prompts. And I just want you to take a moment and kind of think through these different things as this can be a model to help you pray in this coming up year. So first, just take a moment and think about time, think about either specific situations or people who need peace and rest for the anxious. So a certain situation or person where uh, just peace is what's needed. The supernatural gift of the Lord would be maybe literal sleep. Maybe you know people who literally need sleep or maybe rest for the soul. Take a moment and pray for peace and rest for a situation, the anxious. Now, don't have it there, but maybe the great need is for presence. The angel comes down and he's present with Peter in the midst of his cell. You know, who, what, what situations where we need the presence? Can you pray for the presence? You know, the reality is, like Moses tells the Lord, that if you don't go with us, we don't leave from here. If his presence is with you, you can experience or endure anything. That's the great gift of the gospel is that his presence to be with you. So pray this year that you'll experience and know his presence. Now pray for a light to shine in the darkness. In times, situations, places with a darkness, pray that in those situations the light would shine into the darkness. Now pray for a freedom for those who are bound. When the Lord shows up, it brings freedom, true, real freedom. Who the Son sets free is free indeed. What type of freedom do you need to experience? Or pray for freedom for those you know are bound. 
And pray that we'd be, we would know and be aware of what it means to be clothed in his righteousness, that that's our covering. And the freedom that that gives us so we don't have to posture or preen or pose. And now pray for the specific leading of the Spirit. You know, the Spirit specifically led Peter to specific places and out from one place into another place. So maybe this year you need specific leading of the Spirit. And then now pray that you would have the faith, you have eyes of faith to actually see the specific answers to those prayers. Often he does answer our prayers, but it's in ways that might surprise us or ways that we don't see. And then now pray that you'll have the patience to wait. Sometimes the Lord waits and he works things on his own timing. So ask the Lord to help you to walk in that timing. Lord, we praise you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you for this model that we see in Peter. I thank you for an example of someone who experienced true, deep, profound transformation. Uh, transformation, so once a heart that was captured by fear and anxiety could be set free so he could have such poise and stability that even in the midst of the most difficult times, he could, have, he could be at rest and sleep. And so I pray for all of us that this year we would experience similar types of transformation. So whatever things are hindering us or uh, discouraging us, that we would find uh, the transforming power of your word and your spirit to overcome those things. So we thank you for this new year. We commit it to you. We ask that you help us as a church to be like this church who are utterly committed to seeing you act in all things. And then we ask that you help us to be people who uh, are 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 transformed by the power of your spirit. And this we ask in Christ's holy name. Amen. And now may the love of a dying Savior, the power of a risen Savior, and the hope of a returning Savior be yours now, this week, forever and always. Amen. Go in peace. <laughs>